What is up, everybody? This is the Wild Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Heskett, and this is episode 73. Today's guest is Nick Real. He's the founder of The Real Company, author of Sleep Secrets, and creator of The Final Sleep Solution. So he is a coach and has been a coach for 15 years, about half his life, uh, just like myself in the health and fitness field. However, where I am an expert with uh, older population and with uh, hunters, he is an expert when it comes to sleep. And if you've been following me for any time at all, you know that part of the core four of PWC, the foundation of your journey to getting amazing results and achieving the health goals you want, one of those is sleep. If you have uh, nutrition and fitness together, it kind of forms a triangle because the other cornerstone is sleep. You can't have amazing results without sleep. And I know very well because I was a trainer for many, many years and didn't get enough sleep. And instead of getting results, I would usually end up injured or just burnt out. So Nick has dedicated his life to helping health and fitness enthusiasts create high quality results by aligning their nutrition and lifestyle to their chronotype. You're going to learn all about chronotypes today. We're going to learn about how sleep plays a role in fat loss and basically being the author of your own story. So before we get into it, usually this is at the end, but make sure you grab the freebies down below. In fact, I grabbed them for myself and I'm going to be giving them to my clients after this episode airs. It's fantastic. Uh, you're going to learn about chronotypes. I happen to be the classic type, uh, night owl. I'm the type three chronotype. So as you're listening, you're starting to hear stuff. That's going to be me. And in fact, like I asked some self selfish questions about it, but I did do his test. I'm the night owl, so I am trying to align my day to better suit that. And so far, it seems to be helping. All right, that's enough of me talking. So let's get into this interview with Nick. What's up, Nick? What's up, man? All right. So I'm excited to have you on, but tell the audience who don't know you yet a little bit about yourself and how you became a coach. All right, guys. So my name is Nick Real, like the real deal. That shameless plug, that is my email address. It's totally the real deal. But anyways, I'm not going to give the actual domain name. I'll get some random emails. But anyways, that said, hi, guys. My name is Nick. And I have been, in, oh, man, I've been coaching for 15, well, now 16 years. I just turned 32 years old. So I got coach, got into the whole coaching game at a very, very young age. So I started really getting into this at the age of 16. And that's really where the like the root of my origin story and getting into coaching starts from. Cause you know, like with a lot of like 16 year olds, like Chris, when you were 16, did you know what you wanted to do? No, like, no. Yeah. Like I didn't either, but this whole, like, you know, coaching things and throwing weights around the weight room, like during football practice was like really, really fun for me. And I just naturally discovered, like, I just love this stuff. And I was like, okay, cool. Well, I'm just going to figure out how to make a career out of this. And it wasn't too much long, longer after that, that one of my coaches says, yo, you know, there's career fields out there that you could work in, like where you coach people like fitness, nutrition, the whole nine yards. I was like, you mean I get to live in a weight room and, and yell at people? Oh, this is great. This is awesome. I don't have to have a boring job. Oh, this is great. So naturally I went with that road and that led me to getting a degree from the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, say that three times fast, in comprehensive kinesiology with an emphasis on biomechanics and nutrition. 
So big mouthful. And inherently what that means is I understand how the human body works at a deeper level than, you know, a lot of other people do. And that means absolutely nothing until you can actually turn around and apply that. And from there, I got offered like right out of college. I got so lucky. I was offered a job for coaching by one of my former bosses. She had just started up a novel health and fitness center inside of an international airport serving its employees. Up until that date, there had been nobody else that has done this. And she said, there's a great deal of opportunity for you to get like your hands on a lot of clients and help a lot of people since this is what you want to do. And I was like, okay, cool. Let's, let's totally get on board. Let's totally do this. I'm not going to say no coming right out of college, having like a whole bunch of college debt. Am I going to turn down a job that was just sitting right there? I got lucky in full transparency. So I took it. And once I got my feet wet in there, a lot of how I used to coach my clients and I was coming from like an athletic background. So lots of strength and conditioning and living in Vegas, the bodybuilding community is very much prevalent here. So I was very well versed with a lot of bodybuilding training techniques, a lot of their dieting techniques. And when I got into the real world, oh boy, that none of that, none of that worked. No, it and doesn't. I was, no, it does not work. It works to a very fine point. I mean, first and foremost, total change in demographic of who I was working with. So I went from working primarily with like bartenders, cocktail waitresses to your general mom and pop who has been working five, six, seven days a week in some cases for 30, 40 plus years. They have health issues. They, their knees aren't too great. Their sleep quality has absolutely been in the tank for at least a decade it's a mess. The last thing they want to do is like do a whole bunch of like bodybuilding movements. They don't want the same types of goals. So it was a big old out check for me. And that was one of the turning points inside of my career is like figuring out, it's like, Oh, how do I take all this knowledge and all these skill sets that I've clearly developed over the course of my life up until that point? And how do I begin, you know, helping these people reclaim their health reclaim their youth, being there longer for their children, showing up as a better version of themselves for not only just themselves, but for everybody who's counting on them. How do I help them overcome years of insecurities? How do I help them overcome years? And in some cases, decades of multiple instances, multiple diets, multiple programs that they have done to lose weight and they've not got it off. So how could I best help these people? And this is really where it led me to focusing on a niche that I'm well known for inside my space, which is sleep. Because you you and I both know, Chris, that without quality sleep, you're not going to be able to create any type of like quality result that you nope. want, whether it's, you know, putting on muscle, losing body fat, you know, re revitalizing your inner athlete. You need quality sleep because yep. that's a human need. If you do not get enough of it, your quality of life is going to be at best very, very low. So that was a commonality that all my clients and that entire community had mm -hmm. at that particular point. So, so I thought to myself, I'm like, okay, cool. Well, let's just focus on the basics. Let's make sure that, you know, my clients are sleeping well and then move them up from there. And lo and behold, once they started getting their sleep right, they started being showing up with more energy to their workouts. They started being more compliant and consistent with their nutrition programming because that's what everybody loves to do. 
nobody likes being consistent and compliant with their nutrition program. It's relatively boring, yes. but it's one of the biggest problems that we face as coaches and that the clients we work with face is we're not taught how to be compliant with those, with the program. You just say, Hey, here's the plan, execute the plan. Well, there's a lot more that goes into it. There's psychology and physiology. Both of those need to match up to see the highest quality success. And sleep was one of the big foundational factors that allowed a lot of my clients to reverse like years of medical issues. We're talking about anything from insulin insensitivity all the way to type two diabetes and metabolic syndrome. They were, they were able to see success with that. And furthermore, like being able to lose 10, 20, 30, 40 plus pounds. I had one client lose 90 pounds in nine months. And the only real thing that he did differently other than monitoring his diet was getting quality sleep because that's ultimately what's holding him back at that particular point. So that I knew like, Hey, no, this whole sleep thing, like this matters more. Most people don't get enough sleep. I used to personally be one of those people. I had my, right. Yeah. You're going through that right now as a new new father, my issues with sleep was totally self-induced with just working myself to the bone. So I got to experience firsthand how damaging sleepless nights are on all aspects of your life. Like it wrecked my metabolism. It wrecked my testosterone levels. I had four really bad injuries during those three years. My workout sucked constantly. I didn't want to do this anymore. I didn't want to work out anymore. And I just had three years of that and I was able to pull myself out of it. But there are so many people that it's like, you spent decades in this state. Mm -hmm. There's hope. There's a way outside of like taking a laundry list of supplements or going to the doctor and getting sleep meds. Because in 99% of the the instances when I was working with my clients, the, the problems with their sleep were everything in their control. And it's the small things like, you know, having a whole pot of coffee to yourself in the morning because you're exhausted or two pots of coffee. Yeah. That's kind of on you. I had a client who had two to three pots of coffee every day. Could you imagine that? I had a client where, mm, yeah, she was close to, she was definitely doing two pots a day. I've had a client. Yeah. It's bad. Like I go beyond three cups and I'm like, I feel like crap. That's terrible. Or like, taking like handfuls of supplements, melatonin, ashwanga, healthy, and I just supplements, handfuls of supplements or going on sleep drugs, which a lot of people don't want to do that, but they don't know how to necessarily take the information that's available to them, which a lot of it is outdated and apply it to their unique situation. It's the, and that's one thing that I've learned in my experience with coaching. I know we're totally going off on a tangent here and that's totally cool. I don't care. That's totally fine. Is what usually stops people from making progress is it's not that they don't have the access to the correct information. They just don't know how to apply it directly to their situation in a way that actually moves them forward. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. So that's where the whole realm of sleep came in because in the realm of fitness and nutrition coaching, like it's common to have hormone specialists, menopause specialists, like thyroid specialization. Nobody specializes on sleep. So it's a very unique niche. And I wanted to take the time to explain like where that niche came from. And, you know, at the end of the day, like quality sleep next to like having quality nutrition, quality exercise, like you have, you do those three things and you do them well, you will be surprised on how much weight you can lose and how long you can keep it off by just mastering the basics. 
And I'd say for the clients who have seen the highest success with me, that's all really all I teach them. I teach them to master those three basics and they know how to apply those basics in every aspect of their life. So not only are they, be, are they being able to solve the direct problems with their weight now, but they're solving the problem of keeping the weight off in the future, which is the big ticket item for everybody here who's listening. Yep. I know. Um, so when I did the NCI uh, hormone specialist certification, anytime you see it, what messes up hormones, lack of sleep on every single one. We want high cortisol levels. Don't get enough sleep. Want your testosterone levels in the tanks. Don't get enough sleep. Literally every single one. It's like, just get sleep. Yep. And that is directly due to your circadian cycle and your circadian cycle regulates sleep and wake, but it regulates everything that goes on inside your body on a 24 hour basis. And one of the things that it regulates is hormone production. When certain hormones are produced, when are they not produced and how they are regulated? So when you have sleepless nights, that technically disrupts your circadian cycle per se. And there's some context to apply here. One night of poor sleep isn't necessarily going to disrupt your circadian cycle if you're a healthy adult. It'll be able to adjust itself and keep you going because the human body is amazing at doing that. But when you have weeks, months, or years of sleepless nights, you are operating in a state of circadian dysregulation, and that's going to throw everything inside of your body off. And when your body is operating in that state of chaos, the last thing it's going to want to do is free up some extra calories so you can lose weight. It does not care whatsoever about a weight loss goal. It cares about keeping you alive. It cares about making sure that everything that it's doing is operating on a schedule as needed. If it's not able to do that, it's not going to allow you to pursue any type of higher level goal. This is literally like Maslow's hierarchy of needs in real life. And I know for our program, the base, like someone enters our program, one of the first four habits we have for them is sleep because it is that important. Like if you're not getting quality sleep, we are not going to like ramp up your workouts or get more specific with your nutrition. Like there's no reason for you to like count macros or do any fancy thing. Like just get sleep, sleep and protein and move. Those three things. Again, you do them well, they, they will do 90% of the work for you inside of a fat loss goal. Like yep. for real. All you have to do is show up and put in the work and your body will do the rest provided it's getting what it wants consistently. It's one of the simplest things that's so often overlooked in the fitness and nutrition industry because it's boring. And that's just, there's no other way around it. Humans it are boring. all wired for novelty. We like the flashy new thing like keto, everything like that. Some cool little word we don't understand, but it's all going to go boil down back to the basics doesn't matter what type of diet you use per se whether you want to do like more of a keto diet or more of like a you know you love carbs i love carbs i'll never do keto just to save my yep. life if i do keto there's something wrong or i have this inkling for bacon one of the two but let's just say let's compare these two like it doesn't matter which diet you're doing as long as you're in calorie deficit as long as you can sustain it it's going to work mm -hmm. the ground work of making it work is ensuring that you're actually getting enough quality sleep to make sure that it'll actually will work because without it, it's going to go right out the window and then you're well, going to be frustrated. Well, your hormones get messed up with poor sleep, but also all your hunger cues get messed up as well oh, yeah. and your cravings. And that's due to most of our behaviors with food being tied to our circadian cycle. 
and all of us here have experienced a night of really poor sleep, what happens? One of two things. One, you're a voracious eater and you're eating everything in sight. Or number two, you end up basically starving yourself for a good majority of your day and then gorging on food later in your day. This may or may not be induced by consuming more caffeine, which is a known appetite depressant. It may or may not have anything to do with that. But point in case being, there's two types of people, ones who will eat voraciously and ones who will starve themselves, both of which are going to keep messing up your hunger cues. And what people don't know about that is when your hunger cues are messed up, naturally, it's going to change your eating habits and the types of foods that you're reaching for because you're in that stress state. Your body in that stress state is going to seek to conserve energy and store it. What a lot of people don't think about is like, hey, I'm sleep deprived. So naturally, what am I going to do? I'm going to drink a lot more coffee. I'm going to get the big old Trent to cold brew, right? Okay, cool. Oh, God. Exactly. So I go get that and I drink that while I'm not hungry because I've just doused myself and killed off my appetite. 600 milligrams caffeine. Yeah, exactly. Lunch comes around. Maybe you'll have a little something because your hunger cue is still dampened. Well, after the caffeine wears off, your hunger signal is going to come back roaring. And that's typically around, you know, dinner time. You're going to find yourself eating a big meal really close to your bedtime, which your body does not like 90% of the time. Because when you have all this food sitting in your GI system, your body's going to need to process that. And if you fall asleep while it's being processed, it can cause things like GERD. It will lower your sleep quality in and of itself. And you're going to wake up tired the next day simply because your meal timing was thrown off. A lot of people don't think about that, though. That big meal close to bed, more than likely if you're in a sleep-deprived state, is one of the contributing factors to why you're still struggling with sleep. Because your body can only do two things that close to bed, either prep you for going to sleep in which it needs to change over its system hardware per se. There's not a really better way to explain it that way. It changes its, it literally changes the signal of what's going on. But if there's a whole bunch of food sitting there, it's going to keep the signal to stay awake on longer and it's going to mess up your sleep. And now you're in this vicious cycle of stressful days where you have low energy, you're sleep deprived and sleepless nights. Not a good situation to be in. So I know if you eat a big meal that activates like your parasympathetic nervous system and that can help you like fall asleep. However, how many hours should you like the last thing you eat before bed? And part two of that question would be is a small snack. If someone gets hungry right before bed, this is me. So that's totally a selfish, selfish question, Uh but uh, a snack before you go to bed, is that okay? And not going to really affect your sleep quality or does that? So the general consensus is your last major meal should be consumed within two hours of your bedtime. Okay. The reason why is it takes your body a couple hours to process the food you just say into a usable form to be released and stored as energy. And that's also about the time where your GI system is going to go into rest and relax mode. Another reason why is two hours before you go to bed, your body begins the process of shutting you down and getting you ready for sleep. You know, and like I was saying, when you put in a big meal in, that's going to keep your body's wake signal on longer. So that can, in many instances, delay the time that you're actually going to fall asleep, which shortens your sleep window. A couple other things that could happen. And the big one is going to be if your blood sugar levels are too high when you're sleeping, your body will wake you up to go urinate 
per se to mm. rebalance those blood sugar levels. And that's breaking your sleep, waking you up to take you to the bathroom. And you may or may not, it, this really depends on the person. Science is very vague on why this happens. You may have an easier time falling asleep, or you may lay awake for 30, 60, 90 plus minutes, and you have fractured your sleep. And when your sleep is fractured, the quality is going to go down as well. And it's a very slippery slope there. So my general recommendation is 80% of the time, have your last main meal consumed within a couple hours of your bedtime. If you're in a high state of health and your metabolism is on fire, you're going to be able to get away with a shorter time frame because your body's better able to process that and get it out. You're on a totally different level than people who are, let's say, they're not healthy. The hormones are all out of whack. They struggle with sleep. They have over, you know, let's say 30 pounds of body fat to lose. You're in a totally different state. So if you're somebody with a roaring metabolism, you have a little bit more flexibility. If you don't, gotcha. I would abide by these guidelines until you get closer to your fat loss goal. And then you will in time earn that flexibility. So that'll answer the first question. Generally keep it around two hours. You know, if it's 90 minutes, oh my gosh, the world's going to end. Nothing with the human body is 100% ever set in stone. There's something I tell my clients a lot is there are no rules. There are only guidelines. And the guidelines are flexible and very much individual to you. So it's really hard to sit there and put everybody under one category when there's so many different variances. And you know, how, like how my metabolism operates is a little bit different than yours. And yours is going to be different than the person listening right now. Yep. So as long as you're generally within those guidelines you'll be fine. Okay. So if you eat, say you go to bed at 10 last big meal you should have would be like, say eight for most eight, people. Eight thirty. Yeah. It's, you're just giving your body enough time to process the food before you go to bed. That's it. Gotcha. Your okay. Sleep quality will thank you for that. Don't think now, that's quality, unreasonable. Right. Yeah. I'm, most people I know, once they start getting their sleep quality back on track, this one's very easy to do. It's also one of the easiest steps that you can take to get your sleep quality back on track. If you're somebody who likes to eat a big meal late at night and you find yourself going too close to your bedtime, just adjust the time frame, and you'll be amazed on the wonders that it will do to your sleep quality. Now going into your next question, which, you know, what if you have a snack, there is a lot of science out there that proves having a small snack can boost your sleep quality due to its effect on your parasympathetic nervous system. So this works. It really depends on volume. That's it. Okay. So if you're somebody who either prefers needs or just simply wants to have like, you know, a pre-bed snack, I, I would care more about the volume, the overall amount that you're eating. There's a difference between, you know, having a handful of grapes and three giant chocolate chip cookies, which one's more likely going to screw your sleep up the chocolate chip cookies, just due to the amount of calories that you're eating compared to, you know, the handful or two of grapes. So, yep. again, you know, to wrap that one up, snacks, totally okay, provided that you don't have any type of blood sugar dysregulation issues, to totally fine. Just make sure with whatever you're grabbing, you're very cognizant of the volume that you're eating. If you're going to grab something that like, you know, a sleeve of Ritz crackers, because I'm totally guilty of doing this every now and then. Ritz crackers are totally designed to not be eaten in, you know, sets of three, you go through the whole sleeve. So probably don't do that. Or, you know, go get the box of Oreos where you're going to eat the whole sleeve of Oreos, get something that, you know, you're not going to just totally gorge yeah. yourself on and you'll be fine. Usually I recommend for my clients, like somewhere in the like 
150 to 300 calorie range at most. Yeah. I mean, and that's your general snack amount is anywhere from, for most people is like, yeah, 150 to 350 calories. You should be fine. If your metabolism is a lot stronger, then you can go up a little bit more and get away with it. But at the end of the day, as long as you're in your calorie budget and it's not screwing with your sleep, have at it. Nice. Love that. Um, so another thing, this is probably something you've dealt with a lot with clients. And I know it's something I deal with all, all the time with my clients. How does alcohol affect your sleep? Uh, in no way that's super beneficial. And alcohol is one of those, one of those things where it's like, it's super common. Like most of our drinking is done at night. Mm -hmm. And that is more or less due just to how society is set up. But if you look at the effects of alcohol and sleep, just do a quick Google search outside of what I'm going to tell you. And you're going to find that hmm, it's probably not wise to drink close to bed, probably within a couple hour time span. And there's a few reasons for that is, well, number one, uh, alcohol, when your body processes it, it converts it into sugar to process it. And, you know, when you have a lot of blood sugar up in your when you're asleep, you're going to have to wake up and go to the bathroom. That's not good. Number two, alcohol is a diuretic. You're going to wake up to go to the bathroom again if you drink too close to bed. You could also find yourself being too dehydrated when you go to sleep, and that's going to do an absolute train wreck on your sleep quality in and of itself. Dehydration is a very common cause of sleepless nights, and that's simply because most people don't drink enough water to begin with mm -hmm. in our society at least. Circling back to that tangent aside, this, the third reason is – it raises your body's temperature. Your body needs a cooler environment generally to be able to fall asleep comfortably. When you fall asleep, your body will cool off one or two degrees, depending on the person. If you have too much alcohol floating around in your system, your body's not going to be able to cool itself off. And you're going to have a hard time accessing those deeper levels of sleep, such as deep sleep and REM due to simply your core body temperature isn't able to cool down enough for those processes to actually occur. So you're not going to be able to fully meet your sleep debt on top of risking waking up multiple times to go to the bathroom in and of itself. So alcohol close to bed is definitely not a good idea. That said, nobody really wants to hear this. They want to be able to have their cake and heat it too. So here's what I would recommend. If you're going to have a drink at night, Number one, make sure that you are sufficiently hydrated before you start drinking. I cannot express that enough. Make sure you're hydrated. Number two, please allow your body at least an hour per drink that you have before you go to sleep. If so, if you're going to have two drinks, allow yourself two hours before you go to bed so your body can process those drinks. Obviously, this is going to be a little bit more complicated. If it's a Friday night, you're going out with the girls and you're going to have, you know, four or five margaritas. Then you just have to make a judgment call of why you're having four or five margaritas on girls night. Every now and then, will that hurt you? No. We say this all the time in coaching land, as I like to call it. Like one, one salad is not going to make your fat loss success and one slice of pizza isn't going to ruin it. The same is going to apply with alcohol and your overall sleep quality. If you have one night here and there, where you go out with the girls or you go out with the guys, you have a few beers and you stay up later past your bedtime. Is it going to hurt you? No. But if it's happening on a weekly or more of a daily basis, that's when you run into trouble with that. Okay. And it's specifically alcohol. So alcohol kind of helps you get to sleep for a lot of people, it does. but it stops your D 
deeper level. So REM sleep and those deep level restorative sleep that you really need, you don't get that really. No, you are running the risk of that one not occurring. And, you know, you highlighted that alcohol is a depressant. It relaxes people. And that's why it's commonly used as a pseudo sleep aid and have a nightcap before you go to bed. It's one of, two, one of the more worst things that you could do for your sleep just because of all the tertiary effects that it has on your sleep quality that you won't experience until you wake up feeling like death the next day. I, I call this the, uh, the caffeine alcohol trap because mm-hmm. uh, you feel like crap after drinking. So you up your caffeine, which is going to spike your cortisol. Then you go to work and your cortisol is elevated all day. You might mm-hmm. need another cup of coffee in the afternoon and you come home and you're like wired on caffeine and cortisol. So you're like, I just need to calm down alcohol. Yeah. But now it takes you like two drinks to calm down. And then it's like the spiral of like caffeine, drugs in the morning, alcohol, drugs in the night. And you keep that cycle going. Yep. That's exactly what that is. That's a good way to put it. It's uh seen it quite often. Actually, I, I was, when I was a trainer, it was something I got caught in. Like, why is my sleep always trash other than like not getting enough sleep? Cause you're up at four in the morning and you don't get home to like eight at night. Oh yeah. I'm like using alcohol as soon as I get off work to like calm myself. And then I'm having pre-workout and coffee every single day. Yeah. I would, I would go on the gander and saying that more coaches than not struggle with this. Oh, anytime I bring it up, people are like, oh yeah, that was totally me. Mm -hmm. It's, it's happened to me. And this is why, you know, we, this is the reason why we do the coaching game is because we've had a lot of these struggles that, you know, you, the listener may not think we've ever had guarantee. We have struggled more with our health and fitness journey, no matter what our goal is or your goal is. And we have screwed it up so many times we just want to pay it forward and make sure that you're able to like learn from our mistakes so you can see success faster and higher quality success in a more time efficient manner than it took us to figure it out. So we've made all the mistakes, guys, like like Chris was saying, like, yeah, we more coaches have this problem than they would like to admit. And he's one. I'm one. If there's two of coaches right here who are just raising their hand saying, yeah, we have this problem. Don't feel bad if you're experiencing the same problem because we've dealt with it and we can help you get out of it too. Yeah. Cause we've gotten out of it, but it is some it's everyone thinks like coaches are like perfect. And I think the best coaches are the ones who've had to work really hard to get results and also have had like a lot of fuck ups and, Oh, we've made so many mistakes that we know keto won't work for you. Why? done it i did when bodybuilding it was fucking terrible keto and bodybuilding's like an oxymoron it is it's like keto and crossfit i did that in college and it was the only class uh psych methods because i was trying to get a minor in psych mm-hmm. research methods class only class i ever uh did not pass was because like my brain wasn't working because i was trying to do diet down for bodybuilding with a ketogenic diet fucking awful idea <laughs> brain did not work I'm just going to salute you right now. It was the worst experience I've ever had. Yeah, that's that's pretty much just as bad as bland chicken and rice for like years on end. Yeah, worse, actually. I would rather have that because the carbs, your brain actually functions. Keto and no, it is just fucking like, why am I always on a brain fog? Why can't I not like think of like how like two times two? What does that equal? I don't know. What he just said is most of life's problems could be solved with carbohydrate intake. Carbs, yeah. 
Eat some fucking carbs. Oh, but carbs are evil. They're making me fat. No, your calorie surplus is. It's not the carbs. It's not the fat. It's not the protein. It's the calories. End of the day. out carbs and then gorging on what you think are carbs, but they're like carb fat sources like cookies, ice cream, Duh, popcorn with like a stick of butter in it. Is it even real butter at this point? Who knows? My girlfriend loves like movie popcorn and I see like the goo they put on it. I'm like, I don't oh, think that's, that's definitely not butter. butter. That's, definitely that's not just butter. like a whole bunch of like coagulated oils that have been heated up that probably shouldn't have been mixed together. And somehow it tastes like butter. There might be a little, there's butter flavoring involved. Why can't you just put real butter on it anymore? Why it's does it have to be butter flavoring? It's too expensive probably. Oh, my favorite is the popcorn salt that has butter, that's natural butter flavor to it. Yes. That's what I, get. I was like. Oh, I remember using that while bodybuilding. The butter flavoring in pancakes, cardboard pancakes. Cardboard pancakes are the worst. The only thing that got me through that was the hot sauce. Yes. Hot sauce on fucking everything. Oh my God. That's how I, I, I hardly that. use hot sauce now, but like when I was dieting, like hot sauce on everything. Oh yeah, especially like with the amount of eggs that you're like told to eat. I know we're just going on a little story time. It's like, oh hey, you have to eat like like all these egg whites. Which egg whites to me, they taste like ass. I yes. hate. Them. I hate egg whites. Like, just eat the whole egg. Take it from us. Just eat eat the whole egg unless you're just you can't eat it or you just don't like it. Then don't listen to us. That's fine. But the only way I could survive that was dumping a copious amount of Tabasco on it. It was terrible. Ten out of ten, don't recommend it. Yeah, no, that was it. Was like ketchup and hot sauce for me like that combo like with your like 10 egg whites i've yet to eat like egg whites to this day like i i refuse unless my wife's like baking something and using the yolks and we have the egg whites separate in which case i throw whole eggs into it i i do not eat egg whites ever no it's you're missing out on all the good stuff yeah you get the i mean yeah the proteins in the white but all like the good vitamins and minerals and all the good stuff that's in egg is yolk located in the yolks so why take that out Okay, some doctor said that, oh, the egg yolk's bag based off of a like a 40-year-old study that's been refuted by modern science multiple times. Anyways, need I say more? <laughs> a little bit different if you're eating like six to eight egg yolks and the fat con you're trying to watch your like calories. That's a little different, but yeah, like I eat three that's, whole eggs that's every much day. Different. Yeah. But <laughs> one egg yolk won't hurt you. You're having a Denver omelet every morning. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how you do that. <laughs> um, so one thing we were talking about um, before I hit the record button was a uh, chronotype, which is something I know a little bit about, like really like elementary levels about. Um, mm -hmm. But obviously I want to talk to you about it and then for you to educate the audience about what that is. All right. Well, let's, let's dive into this big old can of worms per se. So everybody buckle up, going down a rabbit hole. All right. So most people know, if you know what a chronotype is, most people who do, they have some correlation with a type of like sleep-wake schedule that you are keeping. It has been labeled in many ways, most commonly with animals such as like a lion, bear, a wolf, and a dolphin. There are four known chronotypes, so I listed the four known animals. What a chronotype actually is, it is a genetic preference for a circadian cycle time frame. That is a big mouthful. And what this means is every single one of us has a genetic preference for our circadian cycle to operate on. And this largely affects when you go to sleep and when you wake up, hence why 
most of the information that's available on chronotypes has something to do with your sleep schedule and your wake schedule. What's the optimal sleep time for you? What's the optimal wake time for you based off of that? And this DNA has been inside of our brains for tens of thousands of years before we lived in modernized society. We lived in tribes with more of a hunter-gatherer lifestyle. And for us to survive as a species, we need to make sure that things are taken care of 24 hours a day, regardless of if someone's awake or not. Somebody needed to be on watch duty at night. Somebody need, needed to be up and about doing things in the day while the night guard slept. So this is lots and lots of DNA and years of it in our brains that only recently we have deviated from like big old history lesson. We didn't really shift the way we lived as a society until the 1900s with the invention of electricity. And that gotcha. allowed bigger towns and cities to start evolving and modern technology to really come into place. So within the last, you know, what is it? 2020, it's 2023. Let me look at 2023. Yes. So within the last, let's say 123 years, we have changed the way we live as humans versus the tens or hundreds of thousands of years our species have been around. You're not going to get rid of that DNA or that way of living just in that time span. Right. In the realm of genetics, that's a very small, very small window in time. It's like three generations. Literally three or four generations, depending on how you view a generation. That's very small window of time. So your great grandparents were alive when this happened basically, mm -hmm. to give you some perspective. It's not that far away. So furthermore, what the chronotype actually does is it controls more than just when you go to bed, when you want to wake up. It controls everything that goes on inside of your body. I like to call it your body's operations manual, so to speak. It's this genetic code and this genetic preference. So when you wake up, it knows when you're waking up and then everything that your body needs to do while you're awake, it is programmed to do while you're awake. And then once you start going into sleep, it knows when to shift over and what needs to happen while you're asleep to get you restored and recovered and everything that goes on inside your body. So we're talking about your hormones, your sleep, your wake, everything that goes on inside your body can be traced to your chronotype. And how your body's naturally wired. And this is extremely valuable information for those who are looking to lose weight. Because your chronotype has a very strong influence on not only your circadian cycle, but your behaviors with food. And we've established so far here while we've been talking that you know, quality sleep is essential for optimal behaviors with food. Well, your chronotype plays a big role in your sleep wake cycle. So if you're someone who's struggling, let's say with being consistent with your diet, let's say you've, you're able to be consistent with a couple of days and then you fall off, you find it difficult to be on, you find yourself like shifting meals all over the place. You have no type of like meal consistency, which by the way, your body does thrive when you have a consistent meal schedule. This is vastly different than meal timing and how it's taught nowadays. Your chronotype's able to control all of that. And a real good hack that I've taught my clients, and you guys are some of the first people to hear this. If you're struggling with being consistent with your diet, reconnect your lifestyle with your chronotype. It'll automatically adjust course, and you'll find that being consistent and compliant with your diet, your exercise, and your sleep become, quote, insanely easy to do. And this is not me talking. 
I just got done running a challenge with this. And these are the participants who have taken this challenge because they struggle with their sleep. They struggle with their energy levels. They struggled hard with being consistent with their diet, being consistent with activity, all those things that we as coaches tell our clients that they need to be consistent with in order to achieve their goal. So we just solve that problem simply just by getting the client's body to work again. And one thing that I say a lot in my community is that when you learn how to work with your body, it will work for you. And that is the power of harnessing your chronotype and understanding how you're uniquely designed to operate. The more you know about yourself and about how your body works, the easier it's going to be for you to make the lifestyle changes that stick that ultimately create the highest quality success with your health and fitness goal. Now, how do you go about finding out what chronotype you are? Is this something like you just look up the different kinds and you're like, that resonates with me or like what, how do you figure that out? Take an assessment. Gotcha. There's a okay. whole bunch of chronotype assessments out there. I have one in, in my personal opinion. It is the most robust one out there. I will make sure I get the link over to you for that. So yeah, that I'll drop that in the show notes. Show details. But I mean, any of them will do it. You can do a quick chronotype assessment. Uh, Dr. Michael Bruce has one that's good. I think mine's a little bit more in depth. But by the way, it doesn't matter. Just get the assessment done. And you'll have a chronotype and that is more than likely the chronotype that you have. Now that said, nothing with humans is hundred percent set in stone. You may be what I call a type one chronotype, which is your early type. It's also known as the lion, but you still may sh share some personality traits and some characteristics of, let's say, you know, like a type two chronotype, which is the bear. This is the most common chronotype. This is a chronotype that most of society has been built around since most of these people run that quote nine to five schedule biologically cool little fun fact about that for you. You can share differences, but you're going to align with primarily one and that one that you align with just a little bit more nine out of 10 times is going to be your chronotype. Gotcha. What's the differences between the four? Cause I've seen the animals and honestly, I saw the animal thing. I'm like, that's weird. That can't be a real thing. And then you say, I'm like, Oh crap. I've never paid attention to those. Right. So they use the animals as a way to describe how the chronotypes work. So lions, like when you think of a lion, you're like, oh, the lion wakes up super early. Well, type one chronotypes, as I like to call them, they are your early risers. And gotcha. it's going to be at surface level, just the sleep-wake schedule timing differences that ultimately separate them. There are nuances and associations with different sure. personality traits that have been backed by science, but that one's a little bit more vague. And that's where you're getting more into behavioral psychology. There's okay. a lot of merit to it, but a lot of it's not 100% understood as much as the physiological aspects are. So let's take the lion, which I'll just call it the type one chronotype. These are your early risers. These are the people who are crazy and they wake up and let's say like four to about, you know, 530 in the morning. I'm going to raise my hand because that's me. I've always not been me. the early bird per se. And these types also go to bed really early. We're the grandparents of society. We like to go to bed about 8 to 9 p.m. with some variances okay. on either side there. And then moving into the bear chronotype. This one I call type 2. And this is the only chronotype that has two different subtypes. This one does have an early subtype that resonates a little bit more with the type 1 chronotype. So it wakes up a little bit earlier than the classic type 2 chronotype. Then you have a later type, which wakes up a little bit later. But if for most people and for you listening right now, more than likely, this is going to be your chronotype since it makes up over 50% of the human population. 
you're going to be one of these people who likes to wake up anywhere from about, you know, six to 8 a.m. You rise with the sun and you set with the sun. This chronotype sleepway cycle generally goes in sync with the solar cycle. And I call this one the solar type as well. This again, most people are going to be this particular type. Moving into the third type, I call this chronotype three. This one's commonly known as the wolf. These are the people who like to wake up earlier in the morning, sometimes late afternoon, though that one isn't as common. And these are your classic night owl. They thrive after the sun goes down. So these are the people that are like super creative. They're super energetic. Once the sun goes down, people like me are like, how the hell are you existing at this particular point? Because I'm already going to bed while they're like getting ready to like go get on the day. So yeah, they'll wake up anywhere around like 11 a.m. to about 1 p.m. And they can be up anywhere from about 1 a.m. all the way up to like 3 to oh, even wow. 4 a.m. There's a big variance here. And it's, it's such a wide variance. And it shares a lot of traits with the type 4 chronotype, which I'll talk about in a second. But your type 3 chronotype, if you have a random energy spurt or you get super creative later in the evening, that is a classic hallmark of a type 3 chronotype. And you're a classic night owl because they're the only chronotype known today that has that random energy burst later in the evening, which is semi-close to their bedtime. About three or four hours before they go to bed, they have a random energy burst. Then moving into the type four, which is called the dolphin. This one's also called the insomniac. This is the least known chronotype. It is the rarest chronotype. These types can shift their sleep-wake schedule to fit any other types but naturally most of them are going to be night oriented they are traditional light sleepers so if you like awaken from like the minuscule ounce of light or the smallest noise and you're just a generally light sleeper and you're night oriented more than likely you're a type 4 chronotype this one is really really tricky to pin down because not a lot's known about them a lot of them from what the studies have shown they like to wake up in the afternoon and they go to bed pretty much when the early chronotypes are waking up. So these do fall in line with more of the night oriented, but they can exist on a day orientation as well. Again, you know, the classic hallmark there is they're traditionally light sleepers, quote, no matter what they do. So there are your four chronotypes. Interesting. Very interesting. Like, which one am I? I'm not sure. It's hard to tell when you're, like since you're a new parent, more than likely you're struggling with your sleep. It's really hard to tell which chronotype that you are because when you're struggling with sleep, your sleep-wake schedule is going to be all over the place. You could test as one chronotype and you could be a completely different one naturally just simply due to your sleep-wake schedule being thrown off. So my question to you is before you had your kids, would you say you're more of a morning-oriented person, a day-oriented person, or a night-oriented person? I've usually been more night. So I think I'm going to fall a little bit more towards the wolf where like I used to love to like sleep into like eight, nine, 10 o'clock, but not, not really like 11 noon. That was too far. But mm-hmm. even to this day, like I'll get content ideas and I have to have my phone. If it's not charged, I always, I'm like, Oh, my phone died. Cause I'll get in the shower and immediately I'm like at night. I'll have like 15 content ideas. And I have to like write them down. Like, I wish I could film right now, but my wife will kill me because I could knock all these out. These are amazing ideas. And if I don't write them down in the morning, I'm like, oh my God, fuck mornings. 
I would say based off of like what you just told me, you're, you're probably a type three chronotype. You could be a type two B, which is the light one. And those two kind of mesh really well together. It could be that, but I would say based off what you just told me, you're a type three chronotype. Okay. I'm like, I do like, like to wake up with the sun a little bit, but I'm like, that's where I'm like, I'll have to do the assessment. Am I that type two B or am I that, that type three? Yeah, I would take this and find out, man, and let me know when you do. Yeah, I will. Um, it, it's interesting because I worked. So when I was in person training, I worked with two people who are definitely type ones, mm-hmm. and I'm the type three. So I'm the night out. They're like, oh, we love getting up early. Like, you know, trainers, like early mornings coming to the gym on fire. I'm like, please do not talk to me. Dude, leave me alone. I'm like the only one, but then at late at night, they're all like wanting to go to bed. I'm like, what are you guys doing? Like we would do like team things. I'm like, we're just like getting started guys. They're like, no bed, bed. I'm out. Yeah. That's me. There's nothing worse than like uh, a naturally like evening oriented person living more on the day schedule. In your case, you're trying to live an early person schedule. So yeah, it's just not vibing or jamming with you at all. And no. then you have like people like me who are like, yeah, hard charging in the morning, screaming at you. And it's like, whoo, whoo. I haven't had enough coffee to deal with this one yet. Yeah. Uh, the rule in the house is uh, no talking to me before I have my first cup of coffee. We have the same rule. I practice it daily. And I'm you know, an early bird. I still have that rule. Yeah. Do not talk. Once my wife's like, "Are you done your cup of coffee? I have something I need to bring up with you." Like, wait, okay, go. <laughs> Man, that's funny. Yep. Okay, that's interesting. I'm interested what the listeners are as well, but um, it makes sense why type two is the most common, though, mm-hmm. because that's you know the the uh, solar cycle. Now, does that so type two does that change depending on the time of year? So someone who's that would they get sleepy earlier as like the time of the year changes. So we go to winter and the daylight length shortens. Do they get sleepier earlier in the night? And then they want to wake up later. And then that lengthens comes summer. Yes. Okay. It will. They are more flexible with that solar cycle. And most humans are where a lot of people end up running into trouble and where it gets a little fuzzy is electricity light at night especially when it's the darker months we're not getting enough natural light and we have more of exposure to bright light after dark closer to bed that naturally wake like messes up your sleep wake cycle and that is a root cause of why seasonal depression occurs and a lot of times it occurs with people who are very reliant on the sun which is why, you know, a vast majority of people, they prefer, you know, the warmer months, you know, spring and summer, and they hate fall and winter when it gets darker out because it does mess with their circadian cycle a little bit. Now, how much that's really difficult to say, because not a lot of research was done on this particular topic. And for any of it to be successful, you would have to get a whole bunch of people to agree to live their life in the dark when the sun goes down at at three o'clock in the afternoon in January. Not a lot of people are going to want to do that. So yeah, I would say, that would be a reason why. And again, you know, outside of your chronotype, your circadian cycle can be trained to exhibit a different sleep time and a different wake time. And a lot of people have to do this and a lot of people screw it up. So you're, you're naturally evening oriented people and your overnight people, like your night people, 
it's really difficult for them to integrate themselves into like modern society because modern society has been built off of more or less the nine to five schedule when the sun's up and when it's down, when the sun's up, people are active when it's down, unless you live in Vegas with me, then people, then people go home and they're down for the night. It's the exact opposite here right now. It like, like literally the exact opposite. It's 115 degrees out right now. Nobody's out. Once the sun goes down, nightlife happens. Everybody's out. Ghost town during the day. Well, unless you're a tourist, but if you're a local like me, you're never outside until it's dark out. But anyways, that's not the point I'm trying to make here. The point I am making is when you have someone who's naturally night oriented and they're trying to assimilate into like a day schedule, if you're not consistent with your sleep and wake timing habits, your body will snap back to what it wants. When you give your body an inch, it will snap back to its natural preferences Interesting. This can cause a lot of issues with sleep, which is going to have cascading effects on all aspects of your life and specifically with your nutrition and your exercise habits. It's going to make it very difficult for you to be consistent with that simply due to your circadian cycle is now operating in a state of some form of dysregulation. And until it's regulated again, it's not going to be able to smooth itself out for lack of a better term there. So So how quickly can you dysregulate it? Is this something like if you go back to how you naturally want to sleep on the weekends, does that mess it up? Like then you're like in the nine to five for the rest of the week. And then you like, like someone like me wants to sleep in, but stay up late on the weekends. Does that, is that where that dysregulation would that happen in just those two days? Yep. Those two days, Hmm. I'd say for most people like shifting, I'm talking about small shifts. Like let's say Let's say you're somebody who's naturally like you want to wake up around like 8 a.m., but your work has you waking up at 6 a.m. Let's say you sleep in a little bit on the weekends. It's not going to throw you off too, too much. As long as you have a good state of health, your nutrition's great, you're overall active, you're getting sufficient amount of sunlight, you can mitigate a lot of these challenges. But if you're not getting that, you could have a problem with that because your body doesn't care if it's Sunday, if it's Tuesday, if it's Monday, it doesn't care. It only cares about predictability. This is my sleep schedule. This is my wake schedule. And it wants to commit to that seven days a week. So if you're someone who's struggling with your sleep and you say, Oh, well, you know, I stay up later and then I sleep in and then I try to get back to my schedule and then come Monday, I'm just exhausted. I would encourage you to, for the next week, just stick to your same sleep wake timeframe, seven days a week. Watch what that does to your sleep. It's going to improve the quality of it. And you may find out that it's not worth going back to jumping back and forth between the two. Will there be some instances where let's say your sleep need is higher and you sleep a little longer? Yeah. Not talking about those talking about intentionally staying up later and sleeping in longer on the weekends. Cause what you're doing, like, think about it. You are soft jet lagging yourself. Mm-hmm. If you sleep in an additional two hours, you have changed your body's clock system to up two hours. That's like for me going to the Midwest, it's going to take a little while to adjust off that. And then coming back from the Midwest back to Pacific time within 48 hours, I'm going to experience a little lag and then I'm going into my week with that lag. And it's really easy to have suboptimal behaviors that will keep your sleep quality low indefinitely and keep you further and further away from achieving the body of your dreams. All from that one simple little thing that could happen from. I never of that i never thought of it like it's jet lag but that's the perfect example i get asked a lot in other coaches communities and they work with like nurses 
and overnight yeah. workers. And a lot of overnight workers, they try to have two different lives. It's like they have dual lives. They mm-hmm. have their work life where they're on night shift for three days of the week. And then they try to live a normal life with their buddies for the next three or four days. It doesn't work like that. That's equivalent for you going to Europe and back in three days. You're going to have jet lag. It's going to take its toll on your body. Your body does not like that. It does not care about your social life in that manner. This is why night shift is a big problem in this country as well, because most people simply aren't wired for it. Unless you're wired to be up at the hours, it's probably not a good idea for you to stay on that shift. So if you're a shift worker and you hate shift work and you can get out of it, I'm going to encourage you to get off of that night shift as quickly as possible. There's a reason why it's classified as a low-grade carcinogen, because it has been linked to certain forms of cancer. Most people aren't going to thrive there. Only a small amount of people will. But if someone doesn't have a choice, basically stick with whatever their sleep wake cycle is for their night shift work. That's what I recommend. Kind of sucks, but I mean, it sucks. I feel for these people, but what do you want more? Do you want to be able to, you know, have some semblance of a life, even though you're on night shift, or do you want to be like basically dead to the world seven days a week? Well, they're like zombies a lot of times. Yeah. You just have to make that judgment call. It's a tough one. There's no easy answer to that. I mean, the quick best answer is like get off night shift. But for those people who can't just make it happen, I would encourage you to stick to whatever. If you're working nights four days a week, stick to that schedule seven days a week. It, at the very least, you're giving your body a sense of normalcy and your sleep wake cycles are going to be able to pick up to that. And your body will sync up to that provided you're doing it consistently. That's going to improve your sleep quality. That's going to improve your life quality. That's going to be better able for you to have great nutrition habits, be active consistently, and all those other things that we all know we need to do to achieve our health and fitness goals. It just makes it harder to do it on night shift. It's not impossible, though. Definitely a challenge. I'm just like thinking of like a strategy because we do have some like night shift nurses in my community. I'm just like, okay, like. What's the, what's the best strategy to do? Like, like they like split the daytime, like sleep a chunk in the middle and have a little morning and evening. Do you like push it off? And it's like, you're going to work at night and you have like, you sleep after you get off in the morning. And I'm like, well, I guess it would depend person to person. What would be best for it, them in their it life? Would. Most of the times when I've been asked this question, cause I do get asked this question a lot. These are nurses who have a dedicated night shift. They're going into work at 6 p.m. They're getting off at 6 a.m. Their life pretty much is revolving around that. And in that case, when they get off of work, that's inherently their evening time. So they're going to bed, let's say, you know, by like 9 a.m. And they're sleeping all the way up until, let's say, 3 or 4 p.m. And then they get up, have their breakfast and do their thing. It's very much similar to a normal life. It's just the time frame is vastly different than just how we're living it for all of us who aren't working night shift. It's inherently the same thing. It gets more complicated if children are involved. Yes. And that one is that one is tough. That one you're going to need to have a balance of consistency and flexibility. And there's no proven system that I'm aware of that will give you that other than first developing a consistent schedule for yourself. Even if it's broken, like how you outlined it, you have, you sleep for a little bit, let's say you have to take care of the kids and then you go take a nap for a little bit and then go back. 
I mean, anything is better than absolutely nothing in that particular case, but your body needs some sort of sem semblance of consistency before it'll give you any type of flexibility. Okay. Hmm. That's a tough one. That, that is a tough, that is very, very tough. Can it, can you offset the poor sleep? You can to a degree with proper diet, proper exercise. Just understand though, it's going to be more difficult for you to naturally keep up with these things, which means it's going to require a little bit more willpower and effort on your end to make it happen. If you're somebody who has the willpower, the dedication and the drive, you will not have a problem pushing through this. If you do, I'm going to encourage you to take a couple steps back, normalize your sleep schedule a little bit, and then go back and do those things. You're just making this easier for yourself. There's no point of beating your head against a concrete wall if you're not going to make any headway for it. Okay. Just giving yourself a headache. That's it. So different, but still similar topic. Um, so I worked with um, a few police officers a few years back. And in the local area, they do two weeks on for days, two weeks off, uh, two weeks for nights. And they keep flip-flopping every two weeks. Mm -hmm. Terrible. Cause it was like, it took like a week to adjust each time. Yeah. Um, so I, this is going years back. I heard that using like melatonin can like adjust your sleep cycle faster. Like it's not like instant, but you can supplement with those times to like change your circadian rhythm to match when you want to go to sleep and then wake you're sh shaking your head. So I'm assuming you can do that. This is in one of my experiences. And from what I've researched and I've had a few of my clients apply who are flight attendants and they're time zone hopping frequently. This is one of the few effective uses of melatonin. It's when you are changing your sleep to wake schedule that dramatically, it will help accelerate the timing period change. That okay. is it. So when you go over from days to nights by taking, you know, low dose melatonin strategically while changing your sleep and wake times, it's only going to help reinforce the different timing pattern faster or just make it a little bit easier for you to do that. Is it going to completely make it natural? No, because it's not natural to do that whatsoever. You're still going to need, I mean, the longer time you have, the better, but I'd say at least you know, two, optimally three days to make that shift happen Two okay. is everybody should have two, unless you get screwed and then you're just screwed. Cause I know some people who worked air traffic control and they would be on the graveyard one day. And then the next day they were on the day shift. That's how they roll it there. That sounds like it accidentally that happened. <laughs> There's a reason there's a lot of evidence out there that suggests that having that type of schedule is a reason why air traffic issues have occurred. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's interesting. So is a real thing in the aviation industry, if you're about to go fly out, sorry if I made you nervous. Um, so I liked how you pointed out low dose melatonin because everyone wants to hop on the like, 10 or 15 milligram dosages. I usually recommend like the lowest, like under five is usually what I have for people, but you know more than me. So what do you usually recommend? Under five, I think works for most people. I like to even go less than that at two and a half. Okay. Is yeah. less is more. And what a lot of people don't think about is 
if you go to the doctor, let's say you need TRT or you need any type of like thyroid medication, which is hormone medication, birth control, hormone medication, anything dealing with hormones, you have to have lab work done and you need a prescription. Melatonin is a hormone. It's a very powerful yep. hormone. It is also the only hormone you can get over the counter without any medical prescription or medical intervention. You can just go off the store and just buy a hormone. Seems a little funny, right? It's a little funny. It is a little funny, but just people don't think of it that way. No. Like they think hormone replacement. Okay, okay, cool. TRT. We need a prescription. You need to be watched by a medical provider, the whole nine yards. So when you're supplementing with melatonin, you're inherently doing somewhat of a similar similar thing. You're putting a hormone into your body and hormones for the lack of a better term are glorified signalers. They send signals throughout the body that cause chain reactions. And in melatonin, when you put melatonin in, it causes a chain reaction that gets you to fall asleep faster. That's why most people use melatonin. So the human body is a little funny. It's kind of lazy as well. When you ingest a hormone, it gets a signal that says, oh, I, hey, I have all this floating around. Well, I don't need to produce as much now. You keep ingesting that. Your body's going to say, oh, I don't need to do this at all until it stops making melatonin. Now you're kind of a problem. Well, your body will also do something super funny too is the more you put in a hormone, the less responsive your body becomes to it because it gets used to it. We see this all the time with insulin Mm insensitivity. The more you dose yourself with sugar, the more your insulin receptors on your cells don't listen. And that keeps your blood sugar levels higher. Well, your brain does the same thing with melatonin. And eventually you will not respond to the melatonin that you're putting into yourself and your body is not producing optimal amounts to actually get you to fall asleep. Now you're in a pickle because at this particular point, you're semi-dependent on using melatonin to actually get you to fall asleep. So it's a very slippery slope and it's one of the most commonly used sleep aids out there. That's why I advocate if you're going to use melatonin, use it correctly. Make sure you have the lifestyle factors in place to back the melatonin's use because you cannot out melatonin a high stress lifestyle that is not conducive for high sleep quality. You're just band-aiding it and that band-aid is going to fall off really quick and take it for a short duration of time. These things are not made to be used long term. They're not designed to, otherwise your body wouldn't adapt to it. And you could consistently take it. The more you put something into your body, it doesn't even have to be melatonin. It could be ashwanga, which is another common, like super like anti-cortisol supplement that's out there right now. Well, the more you put it, put it in, the less you're going to get out of it. We see the same thing with caffeine all the time. Mm -hmm. The more you drink caffeine, the less sensitive you are to caffeine. And that's why somebody who was okay with one cup goes to two, goes to three to four to two pots of coffee over the course of their life. Yep. So yeah, the lower dose, the better, because you can always increase the dose if it's not enough. It's really hard to go from a high dose to a low dose and experience the same results. I found for myself about three milligrams, if I need to use it, is good. Going above that, I just, I wake up like, just like the sleep hangover. Like when you nap for too long, that's how I feel. Um, For my wife, it's like, 1.5 1.5 milligrams. She takes three milligrams and she gets that like quote unquote sleep hangover the next morning. Like I can't wake up. I feel like shit. Yeah. And when you're using melatonin and that happens, that is a sign that there's an overabundance of melatonin floating around in your system after you wake up. So what I would do in that situation is I would maybe taper yours off to two and a half 
okay. and see how that sleep hangover is changed by that. If it changes and you don't have as much, there you go. Okay. If it doesn't change, lower the dose again. And then if it doesn't change and you're on like the, the smallest dose you could possibly have without basically like cutting like your finger off, trying to cut the little pill to an approximate size, then I would say there's more than likely some unleaved sleep debt, which in your case, because you're <laughs> just, you have a new kid now, <laughs> definitely going to be a factor in your life is you're going to have sleep debt just running around no matter like what you do for the next, you know, year or so. Yeah. So can you explain that? Now we're a little over time, but can oh, you explain yeah. sleep debt a little bit? Cause this was something, it is something I coach with my clients of trying to like pay back for sleep debt a little bit and something I definitely try to do as a personal trainer. Yeah, for sure. So sleep debt is basically your body's need for sleep. It's also commonly known as sleep drive. So in a perfect world, just to illustrate how sleep drive works, when you wake up, your sleep drive is at zero. You're it's you bottomed out. You don't have any sleep drive. You're fully charged and ready to go. Well, as you go about your day, you're doing things metabolically. Your sleep drive goes up due to how active you are because your metabolism produces something called metabolic waste for lack of a better term. I'm not going to go and get to the science on that because it's very, very nitpicky and very detailed and it's very boring. But the more metabolically active you are, it increases your sleep debt due to the metabolic waste. And when it gets to a certain point, you will experience drowsiness. This also more than lies is going to happen with the time of day as well. Around about, you know, anywhere from about two to four hours before you go to sleep, you start getting fatigued and you start getting tired. This is due to not only your sleep pressure, your sleep drive being built up over the course of the day, but it's also your body signaling like, oh, hey, it's getting close time to go to bed. So I should start getting drowsy, but it's really your sleep debt that's driving that. And then once your sleep debt gets to a point, it'll trigger the production of melatonin in your body. And then your body starts transitioning you um, from being awake to going to sleep. And then as you go into sleep, your body begins to eliminate that sleep debt. It re recycles and eliminates all of that metabolic waste, gets rid of it, repairs and restores you, and brings that sleep debt back down to zero in an optimal situation. And then once you hit zero, your body wakes up. Now that said, that's a perfect case scenario. For those people who aren't able to get a full night's rest of high quality sleep, your sleep debt will not be zero. Let's say it's at 10 out of like, let's say a hundred. It's at 10. So you're going to experience a lot quicker fatigue because you don't have basically the battery power that you would if you were on a full charge at zero per se. You following along with this one? This, yeah. this one. So it's like you only charged your phone to like 90%. Precisely. Precisely. And let's say, let's say you had a really bad night's sleep. The kids were crying. They woke you up four or five times. Let's say you're at 60%. That means you only have about what? 40% battery until you get into low power mode. So you only have 40% of basically your battery to use until you're too exhausted to really keep carrying on at an optimal level. And then at that point, your body begins to conserve energy. So if you're not ever eliminating that sleep debt, it will keep semi-compiling on it. At best, let's say it's just always at 10, always at 10, always at 10. But let's say you have even worse night's sleep. Now it's at 50. 
Well, now you only have this much left to use. You don't have as much energy available because you weren't able to eliminate your sleep debt. And this is another reason why a lot of people do like to sleep in on the weekends. It is an opportunity to eliminate sleep debt. Can you catch up on sleep? This is a, such a controversial topic. It's yes and no. Because you're not ever catching up with your sleep. You're simply just allowing your body to eliminate mo- its sleep debt as much as reasonably possible. So can you do that? Absolutely that you can. And in, if in your case, that let's say Saturday morning, you can sleep in an extra couple hours and that helps eliminate your sleep debt down to zero. That's actually in this case going to help your sleep quality throughout the week. It's not going to cause as much of a problem because you're able to fully get a great night's sleep and fully recover. That's going to positively affect your circadian cycle during the day and how you operate. And you're going to be more willing to practice, you know, good sleep habits, be consistent with your bedtime, eat right, be active when you're in that state, as opposed to if you were only being able to get through half of your sleep debt and you had no energy to do it. Okay. And then is uh, like taking short naps throughout the day for people who, where it's possible. Does that also help eliminate the sleep debt? Obviously you're not getting REM sleep, but. Yes, it does. It does help eliminate that sleep debt to a point. There's a lot of studies done on naps and there's a lot of confusion of what it's actually doing because it's very, it's a very fine line between a nap and then you start going into sleep. So a lot of the naps like power naps per se, it has more to do with like the cognitive. How do I say this without going 30,000 feet over your head? <laughs> the cognitive sleep buildup, the mental okay. fatigue, in other words, that you experience, the brain fog. It'll help yeah. with that, that style of sleep debt because sleep debt, sleep debt, whether it's emotional, physical, or mental, it, your body doesn't know the difference. Stress is stress per se. So if that 30-minute power nap is helping you lower your stress and lower that sleep debt, even by let's say like 10%, that's 10% more battery that you didn't have 30 minutes ago. And of course, you're going to be able to wake up feeling way better and perform better as a result. And I'm a big fan of using power naps as needed. And in this case is one of the uses that I do advocate the use of naps, especially like for new parents, but you guys have to live off that stuff. Yeah. I did one right before this podcast. Yeah, you have to because your kid has no semblance of a circadian cycle right now. No. Yeah. Your kid has a chronotype, but it's not set in stone yet. It's still figuring out what is what. It's still developing right now. And unfortunately for you being the caretaker, your sleep cycle gets thrown off. Yep. You need the naps in your case. Would you be able to be the best father that you could be, be the best business owner, be the best coach, just be the best version of you without taking care of yourself via naps. Probably not. No, it's had one today. I'm like, Oh my God, I feel so much better. Yeah. And I think a lot of people feel selfish with taking naps. A lot of them that I've worked with, they feel a little bit selfish. Like, Oh, I should be doing this, especially parents. Well, I should be doing that. I should be doing the chores. I should be, you know, doing laundry. I should be doing this. Well, you could be doing all that. I can't, I'm not going to argue with you on that. But that said, if you're not showing up for yourself a hundred percent, how are you going to take care of anybody else who's depending on you hundred percent? You do right. it for them. And by default, you need to do it for you because if they, if your child needs you hundred percent and you're only showing up at 60%, 
you're only going to be able to give them 60%. And some days that might be 100% and that's okay. And I say this as a wake-up call, it's not selfish to take care of yourself, you know, to take the nap where you need it, to hide in the closet for a couple of minutes while your kid randomly passes out for you to have just like a little breather so you can regain control over your day because your day went off the rails. It happens with parents. So there's nothing selfish with taking care of yourself. If the nap is a way for you to do that, by all means, use the power nap and use it well. If you just like totally zoning out and doing some like meditation, cool, meditate. If you're dicking around on the phone, scrolling Instagram is a way for you to recharge yourself, by all means, do it. It's not selfish to take care of yourself. Selfish not to. Yes. Uh, something I did when I was a trainer, not so much anymore because I have no issues falling asleep because I don't take pre-workout anymore. But when I was Maybe a trainer, um, take pre-workout like mid-morning, get my workout in, rush home, eat lunch. And then I'm like, I should take a nap. And some days I would, some days I wouldn't. But what days I was like still too wired to actually fall asleep, even though I was tired, that wired but tired, um, yeah. I would do meditation. I would just like meditate and do deep breathing. And even if I didn't fall asleep, I felt way better after that, like 20 minute nap. And sometimes I did fall asleep. It might take me 10 minutes, but I would do 10 minutes of meditation, 10 minute mm-hmm. nap alarm goes off. Like, Oh, I feel a lot better now. Yep. And there's, that's basically you outline what NDSR is and that stands for non-sleep deep rest. It's basically controlled breathing a lot of it has to do with meditation for those people who are like anti-meditation because it is marketed very weird and it has been for it so is. long. But there's, there's a little stigma to it. But let's just say for the sake of you guys, let's say if you're not on that, you know, simply by like closing your eyes, like sitting somewhere quiet, closing your eyes and solely just focusing on your respiratory rate and how slow you are breathing and controlling that. That can be just as powerful as a nap without you running the risk of having a 30 minute nap become a three hour nap. This is also why I personally don't nap because I know my body, if I give it an inch, it'll, it'll take a mile from me. So yeah. NDSR control your breath work. Like you outline slow is better. Let's do it. It works. It works wonders. And by you controlling your stress and eliminating that stress, that's by default going to help improve your sleep quality as a result and the overall quality of your life. Because the biggest killer of sleep quality is stress in any way, shape, or form. The biggest reason why people struggle with their weight is stress. When you can control the stress problem, you will kill both of those birds with one stone. Yes, 100%. Awesome. Well, I have to go take care of my kids now. So we definitely went over time, but there is so much good information, Nick. So before I stop this podcast, tell people where they can find you and definitely where that assessment's going to be. All right. So the assessment is going to be linked below in the podcast description. I will get it over to Chris as soon as we sign off on this and you will be able to access this. Uh, Where to find me? I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Threads. Nick Real, that's N-I-C-K-R-I-E-L-L. There's only one of me. Type me in there and you'll find me. I would love to follow. I'd love to get to know you and interact with you and help you improve your sleep quality so that you can go and absolutely crush not only your health and fitness goals, but create the best life that you love living at the same time. Because that's why I do what I do. Awesome. Thank you, Nick. 
Oh, thank you. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to today's episode. Make sure you go down to the show notes and grab Nick's final sleep solution guide. It's free. Also, take his chronotype test. If you're unsure, kind of like where I was, where I was in between the two. So I took it. I am the type three, like I said at the beginning of the episode, I am the night owl type. And I was kind of in between like, where do I fall in line? Because most of my life I've been going against my natural chronotype. So I wasn't really sure. So make sure you grab that. It will be very helpful and best of best part it's totally free also while you're at that make sure you go and rate the show as well give it a five star review not only does this help me but also helps this episode get out there so if you rate it it helps promote this episode so nick actually gets extra uh engagement with his stuff because that's always helpful and you know part of the reason i bring guests on not only is for me to learn but it also helps them out and reach a wider audience so Give us a five-star review. It is very, very helpful to pushing the show out there. And then also leave a review, especially if you really like this episode and really want to have Nick back on or experts like Nick where it's a very, very niche subject. Those are helpful. I do look at analytics and see things, but obviously hearing from you guys is best. So thanks for tuning in again. Grab the stuff down below in the show notes.